Welcome to the Talking Book Atlanta podcast. I'm Perry Patterson, and tonight we have a special guest with us. He is the director of the Atlanta Writers Club, and he has written seven novels. His name is George Weinstein. George, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Perry. You are welcome. Okay, I'm going to give a little bit of an introduction about you. George Weinstein is the author of a diverse range of novels, including the beloved Southern historical novel, Hardscrabble Road, and its sequel, which was written in 2022, Return to Hardscrabble Road, and also the novel of forgotten U.S. history, The Five Destinies of Carlos Marino, the domestic drama of reinvention, The Caretaker, and also an amateur sleuth murder mystery, Aftermath. He's also the author of a kidnapping thriller called Watch What You Say, and even a satirical, satirical, thank you, sci-fi romp titled Offlining. His website is www.georgeweinstein.com. He is also the executive director of the Atlanta Writers Club, and he has helped thousands of writers on their quest for publication through the club and the twice yearly Atlanta's Atlanta Writers Conference, which he has managed for the past 15 years. So welcome, George, to the podcast. Thank you so much for joining. Um, and, and I thank you for um, that last minute, like technical difficulty issue. What I'm going to do is in the show notes, I will put your um, information about your website and I will put the information about the Atlanta Writers Club in that too, because once the podcast is up on Spotify, then people can read that through the show notes and I'll send you the link to the Spotify the Spotify episode after it's edited and everything. So let's dive right into like some questions about your book. Now I've read um, almost three of your books because I've read Hard Scrabble Road and I've read The Five Destinies of Carlos Marino. And I have, I'm probably about, I would say maybe 60, 70% finished with um, Return to Hard Scrabble Road. So I should probably finish that one. I would say in the next day or two. So tell me, and now that you've written seven novels, tell me a little bit about like your first writing experience versus the last book you've written and maybe a little bit of the differences that you've seen either in yourself as a writer or some of the things you've learned along the way. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, and thanks again for having me. Uh, so the first novel I wanted to write was Hard Scrabble Road, uh, which I would call Southern Gothic Historical right. Fiction. And I wanted to write that first because it was inspired by my former father-in-law, so my first wife's father. I just dearly love this man. Uh, and when I got to know him in the 1990s, uh, I discovered that he was the best storyteller God's ever put on this earth. He was just remarkable and was mm -hmm. a very unselfconscious thing he did. He just was a natural storyteller. And whatever we would be talking about at the supper table or the dinner table, because it was a proper southern household, there was no lunch, 
Uh, it was dinner at noon and supper in the evening. Whatever we were talking about, he could somehow relay to experiences he had growing up in South Georgia in the 30s and 40s, desperately poor, uh, the uh, child of a sociopathic bootlegger and a mother who had no interest in raising her children. And his stories were blood-curdling. Um, they were... Uh, there were stories of deprivation, of abuse, always horrible, mm -hmm. <laughs> although sometimes funny, uh, but always fascinating because his childhood could not have been any different from mine. Uh, it sounded like we were people growing up in two different planets. Um, you know, I grew up very boring, middle-class suburbs, and, uh, and he grew up hand-to-mouth, uh, literally dirt poor. And, uh, you know, that would have been hard enough, but then he had the two awful parents. And so I would write down all of his stories, and I did that throughout the 1990s, and uh, was convinced that, you know, put together and with some tweaking, that could be a novel. But I didn't want to learn how to write a novel with his stories. I wanted to have, I wanted to have some experience under my belt, you know, get those... Uh, hours and hours and hours, thousands of hours of writing in before I wrote his story. It, it really deserved that. So Okay, so can uh, I ask a question about, you said that you wrote all these down. Did you just have notebook after notebook after notebook of stories that, yeah, that you were compiling that you heard him tell? Okay, and then yeah. kind of going back to like your early days, maybe even your childhood, were you like an avid reader? Were you someone who was like very, very interested in maybe journalism or writing? And what did you study when you were in college? Yeah, so as soon as I learned to read, I wanted to write. Um, so my the first things I wrote was six years old. I wrote superhero plays, my stuffed animals to act out mm -hmm. on top of my bed to entertain my brother okay. and sister. And it's not a project my parents suggested. It's just something my brain was just wired to do. Just as soon as I learned to read, I, I wanted to write. And if my mom were standing here uh, with me, she would say, well, he was a natural storyteller because he was a born liar. <laughs> as a little kid, I could not tell the truth, even when there was no penalty for telling the truth. Is it raining now? You know, a very easy yes or no answer, no penalty for either answer. I would lie and stretch it as far as I could just to see what I could get away with. Um, hmm, so it's no to write fiction. Um, but, uh, yeah, that's so kind I, of an I, interesting... I don't, I don't know if you've ever told that story to anybody about that you would make up lies to see how much you could get away with. That's kind of an interesting characteristic. Do you find that kind of to be an interesting uh, characteristic or has anybody ever mentioned that before? Or, I mean, obviously you're probably not making up stuff like when people ask you questions like that now, but it was a childhood thing, I guess. It just was. But yeah, yeah, it was just, it was that exploring as a child how much how I could be convincing and what worked in storytelling, you know, okay. literal, you know, tall tale telling back then. I think I was just really interested back then in how I could use language to, mm -hmm. you know, uh, convey this, you know, whatever little tall tale I wanted to 
convey it just to see what I could get away with. Right. Um, so, so I wrote short stories as a, as a teenager and tried to get those published without any success. And in college, um, I started out as an electrical engineer because that's what my dad did. And I had no idea what I wanted to do for a living. Quickly discovered I had no aptitude at all and switched to sociology because I got to write all the time. It was nothing but writing. It was reading and writing. And I thought I might be able to do something with a social degree versus, say, an English degree. Uh, turns out you can't do anything with a sociology degree uh, as a bachelor's degree except go on and get masters and PhDs. So uh, I ended up getting a, an MBA and again excelled in all the courses where I could write. Uh, so you know, so mm -hmm. throughout the 1990s, I wrote these stories that my uh, father-in-law would tell me, and uh, and then learned how to write a novel by writing the Five Destinies of Carlos Moreno and. It took me years, and I workshopped it to death, uh, took it to umpteen conferences, and really learned what I was doing, and I was able to get a literary agent with that. She went off to try to sell uh, the Carlos Moreno book, and then I thought, well, okay, I know what I'm doing, and I can write Hearts Grow Up a Road. And so I approached my, my former father-in-law, and I finally talked him into it, which was a whole other story. Right. <laughs> he did not want to participate in that. Uh, his attitude was, I was just a poor Southern kid, you know, who mm -hmm. grew up rough and escaped into the military. It's what we all did. And I'm no different from a million other boys who grew up in the 30s and 40s. And uh, so it took some doing on my part to finally convince him to help me with the story and flesh out some details and all. But uh, finally did. And uh, sent that one, hard scrabble to my agent in 2004. And, uh, the only good thing she ever did for me was to tell me, always be working on something new. So uh, eventually she had uh, three books under, under her uh, to sell and what, couldn't manage to sell any of them. And uh, so I kind of quit for a while. I fired my agent. Um, did a little freelancing, um, got work that way, and uh, it wasn't until 2012 that I finally found a publisher for uh, Hearts Scrabble and, and the others. Okay. So I want to ask, like, Hard Scrabble Road is probably, like, was that a real road in the area of South Georgia where he was it, from? It, it, it was. It was a, you know, tiny little dirt track, but it, it also really works well as a metaphor for his journey through right. childhood. Mm -hmm. uh, so, uh, and I grew up, or not grew up, but I lived near uh, a hard scrabble road in Roswell, Georgia. Um, there's a, a very popular road called hard scrabble road. All the time, if I'm doing book signings in George in uh, Roswell, I'll get that question about, oh, is this about, you know, the Hardscrabble Road in Roswell? Oh, right. Um, that's another one. But it turns yeah. out that there's a Hardscrabble Road in almost every community. Um, I get emails from people in New York State, Kentucky. Mm -hmm. There are Hardscrabble Roads everywhere. And, and all these people are telling me why I live near Hardscrabble Road. Uh, so okay. everybody wants me to know that. Yeah, that's cool. So I... I really enjoy the Hard Scrabble Road um, series, um, and I have one question. There is the word AYE and then the word God, and when I see that, I'm thinking, 
I'm thinking it says egad, but it's really not egad. So yeah, that was Mama's favorite expression. So my protagonist's mother, uh, the woman who had no interest in raising her children, her mm -hmm. favorite expression was "I God." So really, uh, a a y e like old English. Yeah. For yeah. Some reason, and and you find that a lot with with country people is that uh, lots of expressions they have almost go back to middle English. Uh, right. Somehow those, those expressions have carried down. So I got it. Yeah. Well, in my mind, I kept thinking, this is weird. I haven't really heard this. Is it egad? Which is completely spelled completely differently. And egad is one word and that is two words. And so I was just really confused. And so I wanted to ask about that because I have, I mean, I did grow up in the South. So, I mean, I'm familiar with egad and I'm familiar with like a lot of the way that they speak in the book. And a lot of the things that happen, especially like probably around prohibition, when it, they were probably making, they started making their own moonshine and things like that. And these, these types of things were very much um, going on in the woods, in the backwoods and in the, so, I mean, in probably certainly a dangerous type of um, making a living. So I kind of felt like when you're writing about the when they're selling moonshine and when they're going down these you know dirt roads to this you know cabin like location where they're on the state line um and you know with the guns and you know all the stuff and people are like very wary of what's happening i felt like i bet he's telling he's told some really true stories about these you know, moonshine situations, and that's where you kind of learned about what it was like or what was going on with that, because there's probably a lot of really interesting um, tales. Obviously, you had notebooks after notebooks of listening to him tell his story and, you know, to come up with the, the idea for Hard Scrabble Road. So um, was there anything that you just felt like like oh for the character of is it Renzi the character who's from she's from Texas and she's got all these like um she's very smart she's very scientific she's very um her character is she's half Asian and she's very into like a lot of karate and taekwondo type stuff and she can flip people and so where did her character, how did you develop and come up with her character? And her. So, so Hard Scrabble Road is like 80% true uh, mm -hmm. based on those, all those stories I copied down and other things my father-in-law told me as, as I was working on the book. Uh, but I had to make up uh, some things. And one of the things I wanted to make up was a love story because I wanted this to be kind of a coming-of-age story. Mm -hmm. uh, because in, in real life, he had a crush on the same girl uh, I call Cecilia Turner in a book. She had a different name in real life. Mm -hmm. But every boy in Miller County was in love with, with that girl. So, eh. Uh, and, and nothing ever happened with, with her. Uh, so, you know, I wasn't going to be able to go anywhere with that if I told what actually happened with him uh, in the the ways of the heart. So I came up with this Ryanzi character, uh, and I kind of stole the idea, honestly, from Shakespeare, because there's, it's so often in Shakespeare, there's a girl masquerading as a boy, or a boy masquerading as a girl, you know, for one reason or another. Uh, 
And uh, so I, I like the idea of a girl who's just born at the wrong time for her, that if she wants to do all the things that Rienzi wanted to do, she wanted to do science and uh, mathematics and learn. She was in a bad time and place to try to try to pull that off as a girl. But if she masqueraded as a boy, she could get away with all of that. You know, she could go out in the woods and look at beetles and leaves and trees and stuff like that. And she would just be a very curious boy uh, in the local people's minds. She did as a girl, she would be kind of a freak and ostracized. But as a boy, you know, boys wandered the woods all the time without ever being accosted or questioned. So she figured out a way to kind of do what she wanted to do on her own terms. And I, I just really like that idea of having this, this person is so much smarter and uh, book smart as well as uh, uh, smarter in the ways of the world uh, than my protagonist. And he has to kind of grow quickly and uh, if he's going to keep up with her. And uh, so it kind of forces him to mature. And, uh, and I just like that idea uh, for a coming of age love story with, you know, this kid who he called himself a country bumpkin uh, many times when he was talking to me. Uh, so this hit, you know, having to really up his game if he's going to be worthy of uh, this this person that he's fallen for. I really like that that trope, that challenge and struggle. So when you were when you were down there and you were recording all of these stories that he was telling about his childhood, did you ever go to any of these locations? And was there like something that really kind of stuck out in your mind as like really kind of unique or different or interesting um, that maybe you didn't really, you know, see for I mean, you're are you from Roswell or, or Atlanta originally? No, I, I, I just grew up all over the South as educated okay. in Virginia. South Carolina for a number of years and lived lived in the Atlanta area for the last 30 years. Okay. So this location in South and South um, Georgia Georgia. takes place in Colquitt County, right? Uh, No, in Miller County. Oh, okay. It's funny. There's a town called Colquitt. Okay. But it's in Miller County. And then there's Colquitt County and there's no Colquitt in Colquitt County. Oh, okay. so it's Colquitt in Miller County, and uh, and so I tromped all over that that county. Uh, you know, I wanted to feel the dirt between my toes. Mm-hmm. I wanted to wade in Spring Creek and see what that's like. So on the cover of Hard Scrabble Road, there's this iconic picture of the three mm-hmm. boys. The little boy holding out the can was actually my my former father-in-law. Uh, that's the only picture that exists of them as little kids. And then. Mm-hmm. Uh, cover of the sequel that's the only picture that exists of them together as teenagers same three boys just uh 10 okay. years later on the on the return to hearts road cover but yeah i you know i made sure i visited all the mm-hmm. sites uh unfortunately not much is left uh you know spring creek still flows and floods and uh, you know flows to a trickle in some places uh because uh so many of the aquifers have been drained by the, the people who raise cotton and peanuts down there. Uh, but, uh, you know, I got to go all over Spring Creek. Um, there's a, a church that's briefly mentioned in the book Pilgrim's Rest Primitive Baptist Church that's still standing. I have a picture of myself in front of it. Uh, just a little country church, you know, with uh, 
you know, just an old wood structure with a little graveyard beside it. Uh, but other than Pilgrim's Rest, there's precious little down there that remains of that period in time. Now, of course, the town of Colquitt is still there and Bainbridge is, is still there, but Bainbridge is much more prosperous than it was back in the 30s. And it looks, it's, it's really a nice little town now. Colquitt always looks like it's on its last legs. Uh, if it had a heyday, I do not know when it was, uh, probably around 1900. Uh, but uh, it, it's a town that mm -hmm. is continually on hard times. And it's it's a shame because it's a pretty little town and the people there are just wonderful, just delightful people, uh, just so supportive and great storytellers, every one of them. Yeah. I've made really good friends down there, uh, you know, because people have read the book and invited me down to talk and stuff. Oh, yeah, but, that's uh, great. Uh, but you had asked earlier about how my writing style has changed. Uh, well, let I me ask, can I, before you get to that top, that topic, can I ask one more question about, did you go to any, did you see any actual moonshine stills? Because in the second book, in the sequel, there's some really detailed information about making moonshine and the, and the way to make it taste better and things like that. Did you go to a, plant or did you go to an actual moonshine still or somebody who was um very knowledgeable in making moonshine to find out that information about writing that part of the book you know i have i've seen moonshine uh stills that were recreated in museums and i but i've talked to people who actually make moonshine and and that's where i got a lot of the, the little details um you know the things about you know having it running through a, a, a creek with uh, with cold moving water so that you can cool and condense the, the vapors and, uh, and that's where the alcohol is actually produced you know just little little things like that that were hugely helpful in writing those scenes um, but uh, I'm, I'm actually very glad I have not come across uh, a, a, a still in real life because usually those are heavily guarded <laughs> well, or unless it's uh, unless it's one from like the 1930s or something that's been abandoned in the woods, like, and nobody ever goes to those woods anymore. And then all of a sudden, like, if somebody happened to be trampsing through the woods, oh, look, there's an old moonshine still just kind of <laughs> resting away over there yeah. under the tree. Yeah. Um, but okay, th so that's interesting. So you did a lot of research on like the how to produce moonshine in order to to be so detailed with that so go up, go back to what you were about to say about your your um the changes in your writing well, you the, yeah the writing journey and you really notice it between hardscrabble road and return to hardscrabble road i think is that when i wrote hardscrabble i was a much more literary writer um and there are you know long carefully worded passages you know with with pretty metaphors and things like that and then Six books later, by the time I get to Hardscrabble or return to Hardscrabble Road, um, I have become a much more economical writer, and I would say I'm almost more of a thriller, mystery kind of writer now. In my short chapters, uh, spare language, uh, a plot that keeps moving, cliffhanger at the yeah. end of every chapter to make you keep reading, um, and so the books are very different uh, you know, and the books were written uh, 20 years apart 
and and you can see how I've changed as a writer over those 20 years. Uh, I'm a much more impatient reader now. Well, I think um, a I lot of people to... are. I think a lot of people yeah. are. I think when you when you think about the majority of the audience, I mean, they want that quick, quick, fast moving, you know, what's happening, you know, bringing them into the into the scene and just like, you know, what's going to happen next and that kind of thing. And instead of a lot of long drawn out, you know, information, I think that's just kind of the way that, you know, uh, people are are kind of used to things now or maybe that's just part of the changing in um you know our system i don't know just a lot of a lot, i think a lot i think or maybe it's just a lot of screen time and people just like i can't sit and read a book i mean i think it i mean for me i love reading at night i i and i read a lot on my kindle at night because i can sit in the dark and read without the lights on but i feel like it's just the best way to just wind down at night is to read a book in just fall asleep because it's just a really great way to just completely, you know, forget about your day and dive into something else. And I find it relaxing. Some people might not, but I, and I started reading or falling in love with reading when I was probably around 10, 11 and I read everything by Judy Bloom. So I read all of her books over and over again, loved her. My latest book, which is coming out in a few months is actually dedicated to Judy Bloom. So um, yeah, and she's got a great, um, she's got a great pod, uh, not a podcast, a Netflix documentary. If anybody, um, wants to watch that, it's a great documentary on her, um, on Netflix. She also does a great masterclass on writing. Uh, so that, that masterclass series that you can mm -hmm. purchase online. Okay. Judy Bloom's, uh, class is just and she's just every bit as, as delightful as you would expect her to be. Very informative, too. It's not just, you know, she's very pleasant and easy to, to listen to. She's also very helpful in her advice. Awesome. That's awesome. Well, she's the reason I love reading today. So <laughs> just from the start. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So. She's a treasure. So talk a little bit about your latest book. It's a sci-fi and of course, you know, you've written some, you know, historical fiction, um, you've written a, a murder mystery and a thriller. So talk a little bit about this new book, this latest book called Offlining and when did it come out and how did you come up with the idea for it? Yeah. So, so Offlining is, uh, now for something completely different. Um, and, and that's me as a writer too. I, I honestly, um, constantly cautioning, cautioning writers to not do what I do, which is switch genres. A lot of different genres, <laughs> uh, genre um, because most readers will read in a subset of genres. You know, I, you know, I, I get emails all the time from people tell me when the next hard road is coming out, and I'll say, well. Uh, I've written two of them. I'm not sure I'm going to write a third, but you might like my mysteries. Oh no, I don't read mysteries. You know, I only read. Uh, uh, so lots of readers are like yeah. that. They will not follow an author from book to book if the books are wildly different. Um, and I, I have a low threshold for boredom and, uh, and I read quite broadly, uh, everything from sci-fi to memoir to romance. And so, I, I write broadly as well. 
and that drives a lot of my readers crazy, honestly. So I have this sci-fi book, this satirical, dark, darkly comic uh, sci-fi novel called Offlining that uh, I actually wrote under a pen name, G.J. Weinstein, specifically because it is so different from my other books that I didn't want somebody who's a huge fan of Hardscrabble Road to get a hold of this and just be you know, shocked out of their shoes by, you know, uh, near future setting with, you know, all kinds of craziness in it. So when you um, say near future, what near year future. is it set in? So, well, it's intentionally vague, but it's okay. roughly 50 years in the future. Um, but okay. I don't, uh, I, I have found that writers always get in trouble when they name a year. Sure, uh, sure. Because... They either undershoot the technology or way overshoot the technology. Um, right. I, I don't know about you. I grew up watching a show called Space 1999, and I could not wait to have all those spaceships and stuff, you know, by 1999. Did not happen. That <laughs> hasn't even gotten close. Uh, yeah. So I, I didn't want to err by, by giving an exact date, but, yeah, it's roughly 50 years in the future. Uh that's one of the nice things about writing fiction is you can be purposely vague. Uh, so the impetus behind the story, the story behind the story, were actually a couple of news stories I heard on NPR. Uh, one was about the largest, and this was uh, roughly 10 years ago, the largest concentration of privately owned helicopters in the world at that time were in Mexico City because kidnappings on the streets were so bad um, that these millionaires and billionaires were afraid of getting carjacked. So they merely bought helicopters flying from rooftop helipad to rooftop helipad, going where they needed to go in their helicopters to avoid all the thugs that were and uh, organized criminals who were on the street. Uh, so they were kind of closing them closing themselves off from the rest of society by doing this they weren't in interacting with the rest of society they were only interacting with you know fellow fellow incredibly wealthy business people uh, and so there was that and then there was uh, the reaction to Facebook when Facebook was getting first getting very popular there was uh, an attempt by numerous people in uh, the wealthiest one percent to form their own Facebook group, and it was by invitation only. And one of their criteria was your net worth. And so again, they were closing themselves off from everybody they considered beneath themselves. Um, so there are two examples of kind of the wealthiest one percent sort of enclaving. And so I, I took that and um, and I mixed it with uh, you know terrorism, fears, and things like that, and, and came up with this, uh, and, and uh, kind of rising religiosity again, and religious extremism. Um, there was a story about a preacher who uh, told his congregation that if they were as serious as Christians, as Islamist terrorists were about their own, their religion, that his congregants should be willing to strap on bombs and you know, go blow themselves up and, you know, kill some bad guys, what they considered bad guys. Uh, well, that 
that's kind of an interesting idea about Christian suicide bombers. So came up with the idea of a, uh, a suicide cult, cult that called themselves the Real Salvation Army. And uh, that was targeting the wealthiest 1% who had sealed themselves off in these cities within cities. And that's kind of how the story developed with these two crazy ideas that were based on actual news stories, sort of a ripped from the headlines idea. Okay, so it's kind of like a dystopian into the future yeah, satire. I call it pre-apocalyptic pre mm -hmm. sci-fi comedy. Okay. So we haven't quite reached the apocalypse yet, but we are on the fast train there. Okay. Okay, so that's kind of what offlining is. So it's kind of like that. So is it? So is it kind of got like some military, a little bit of military with involved in, in you know, a different government situation and things like that, and um, yeah, new and, technology. And the, the, the wealthiest one percent have their mm -hmm. own government. They oh. they have kind of cut themselves off from the the rest of society and probably control you know, our society as well, because uh, they can afford to. And, uh, and, and it's about a young man who pretty much lives his life online, even sleeping there. And he's given a real life quest. And he's very excited because nobody has ever asked him to really do anything in the real world before. And so sort of like a knight errant, he goes out on this quest and his life changes forever in ways he cannot imagine. So he gets involved with the wealthiest 1%. He runs afoul of the real Salvation Army, which starts coming for him. And uh, he's got to figure things out very quickly. Um, he's, he's a little bumbling, but also just resourceful enough to maybe be heroic against his will. Okay. Sounds interesting. Okay. Yeah. So talk a little bit about, you've been the director for, excuse me, the, the Atlanta Writers Club for 15 years. So talk about how you got involved originally with the Atlanta Writers Club and, you know, some of the parts about, you know, your job and the things that you work on and things that you enjoy with that group. Certainly. Uh, so when I wanted to learn how to write a, write a novel, so I could write Hard Scrabble Road. Uh, I joined the Atlanta Writers Club on the advice of several local area writers, uh, simply because it was the oldest writing uh, organization in the Southeast. It was founded in 1914 by uh, Margaret Mitchell's boss at the Atlanta Constitution and uh, several other people. And it exists to teach the craft and business of writing and, uh, and support its members. And so I, I got involved in about 2000, 2001, and uh, found an organization that was kind of in sunsetting, uh, I guess would be a nice way to put it. it. It's best days, it's glory days when its meetings were written up in the Atlanta Journal and then later the Atlanta Journal Constitution. Those days were long past. Uh, it was a struggling organization, mm -hmm. had great people, uh, but they were a little high bound uh, because they insisted on doing things the way they were done in 1914, having a dinner meeting at 6.30 on a Thursday evening in Midtown Atlanta. Okay. Unless you live in Midtown Atlanta, you cannot get 
to Midtown Atlanta at six thirty in the in the evening, or you know, or it'll take you an hour, you know, on any of the major roads to get there. Yeah. So it had a problem recruiting people, mm-hmm. um, and didn't have a website or anything like that. And uh, but I love the people involved, and so around two thousand four, they asked me if I would be the next president of the club because I seemed to be the one who was most uh, involved in, in activities and uh, always volunteering for things because I wanted to learn everything I could about writing. And to do that, I immersed myself in the Writers Club. And uh, my, my acceptance speech was, okay, I'll do it, but God help you all. And I changed everything. Um, Okay. So we moved the meetings to Saturdays. We put them on the perimeter um, mm-hmm. so that people could get to the actually get to the meetings. Mm-hmm. And so since then, uh, we've been meeting on Saturday, the third Saturday uh, afternoon um, of each month. And we now meet at uh, the Georgia State University campus at Dunwoody. So what used to be Georgia Perimeter College is now GSU Dunwoody. So we meet there in this beautiful auditorium that seats 175 people, and we usually get 100 to 120 people at a meeting, um, compared to the old days when we used to get 14 people at a meeting if we were lucky. Uh, so yeah. a lot of those, a lot of those changes have borne yeah. fruit over the years. Yeah, uh, I've I've been to at least a couple of meetings and yeah. participated in at least one conference. So, yeah. and it was it was great. Yeah. It was great. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Well, and, and so it's grown enough that in starting in 2008, we started to put on the Atlanta Writers Conference because we had enough members by that point that we could uh, you know, we could actually fill fill conference rooms. So uh, I've been running that since since 2008, and uh, that I have decided is my mission in life is to help writers you know, in any way they can on their writing journey, including helping them get published. Now, we also do uh, an Atlanta self-publishing conference, which is exciting because uh, I'm, I'm interested in self-publishing as well. Uh, Offlining uh, is a self-published book, and uh, I plan to self-publish more books in the future. Uh, nothing against traditional publishing, but I, I've really enjoyed myself in uh, doing everything. You know, overseeing book cover design, layout, uh, just mm. every aspect of it, all the marketing. So, uh, so that's become a, a passion of mine too. And yeah. my wife, uh, Georgia Author of the Year, Kim Connery, uh, is also self-publishing with the, the same imprint that uh, we created together. So, so that's good. So she's doing traditional publishing for some of her series, and then with a different series, uh, self-publishing so she can play with the marketing. Yeah. Well, a lot of times with the the small traditional publisher, you're still probably going to be doing a lot of marketing yourself, probably. Um, Even, even with, you know, my friends who are published by HarperCollins or St. Martin's Press or any of the big publishers, Mm -hmm. they're doing their own marketing. Um, the, the really Big publishers will get you into bookstores. Uh, they will often be able to get reviews for you and blurbs, which are the uh, little author uh, mm-hmm. testimonials or commendations that you see on, on books. Uh, they can get those things for you. 
certainly, you know, get you reviewed uh, in Publishers Weekly and places like that, get you on the shelf at Barnes and Noble. But they actually don't do a whole lot of marketing for you. Right. Um, they, yeah. They put a lot of effort into the run up to the book, and then your book has about six weeks to make it or die. And uh, you know, if it it dies, it goes on the remainder tables at the Barnes and Nobles and the Books and Millions of the world, and uh, then eventually gets shipped back. And they have a very hard conversation with you when you want them to publish your next book. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas the yeah. small publishers are a little more nimble, more willing to try things. Uh, so my wife is published by Black Rose Writing and from Texas, and they're a great publisher. They they churn out hundreds of books every year, but they also do a lot of marketing for authors after the book comes out. They're getting book books for their 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 authors and uh, really working hard to to sell books so it's encouraging that there's some small publishers out there that do at least some of the work but the responsibility is still squarely on the author's shoulders sure yeah uh, and we're, we're really responsible for the book living or dying and finding an audience right another good thing about small publishers is that they're willing to let a book develop over years and to try to find an audience versus six weeks, you know, that the, the big publishers tend to give their authors books. So, okay. so that's good too. Um, so Hard Scrabble Road has probably sold over 40,000 copies now, which sounds like a lot, but it's taken 10 years to do it, which means every year selling a few thousand copies, uh, you know, year after year after year after year. And you know, no publisher has ever told me, oh, we're, you know, we're just going to pull this book or, you know, not paying any, pay it any more attention. Uh, and they've been willing to let it slowly grow over the years and develop a, you know, a following. So, uh, so that's been heartening. Right. Okay. So, <clears throat> and that's kind of, that's interesting. That's kind of an interesting insight into the different levels of publishing, um and what they do and what they don't do and and so that's kind of, that's that's an interesting take um so talk a little bit about like you said that you're you're a very diverse reader and you're a diverse writer obviously but what are some of the books that have really stuck with you and why do you think that is like what is the story that really has grabbed you and you know, taking you into the pages to just want to live there. Talk a little bit about the, some of those favorite books of yours. Yeah, uh, absolutely. So, uh, Anne Patchett, terrific writer. And I've read just about everything she's written. Um, just about ready to start her, her latest one. She wrote a book years ago though, called the magician's assistant. Uh, and it has not gotten nearly as much press as bell canto, and some of her others, the really big selling books. Uh, but it's a, a, a story about a woman who is the assistant of this uh, magician, and she's a uh, stage magician, and she's really, really in love with him, uh, and he's in love with somebody else. And it's just about her journey of self-discovery and figuring out what, what will make her happy. 
so it's a small story. Uh, nothing earth-shaking happens. There's not high stakes, end of the world, you know, stuff on the line. Uh, it's just a small story about one person's growth and discovering what will make them happy. And uh, the the passages are just beautiful. The uh, the the scenes are just marvelously crafted, and it's just a book that I've gone back to over and over again over the years uh, because it's it reminds me that a story doesn't need to be like a Marvel Studios movie. You know, it doesn't need to be you know something crashing and booming or you know somebody fighting every every five minutes in order to hold your attention you don't have to have stakes like the world is on the line in order to make the story compelling uh, you can do it just by creating people who are so believable you would recognize them if you pass them on the street and uh so that's that's always been inspiring to me uh, especially when i'm writing kind of small stories like Hearts for Alba Road. Uh, Hearts for Alba Road is, uh, you know, is not a high stakes book. Uh, it's just about one kid trying to survive a horrible childhood uh, and just persevering. And a lot of my stories are like that with, you know, just very human level stakes uh, rather than end of the world kind of stakes. And so Saucers, the, the Magician's Assistant, rather, um, is a book that constantly reminds me that that's okay, you know, as long as you make the people worth rooting for. Uh, there's an author named Michael Connolly who uh, writes mysteries. Uh, people will recognize the Harry Bosch series, the Lincoln Lawyer series. Yeah. And, uh, and Michael Connolly is one of those really rare writers who is writing better today than he did 30 years ago um, when his first book, Black Echo, uh, came out. Uh, he's, a, he's a much better writer than he was way back then, whereas you find that many series writers have their best books out very early on because they had the most time to craft them because nobody was looking over their shoulder saying, hey, your book's due in 30 days. Churn something out. Uh, as good as Michael Connolly's early books were, I find that he's really uh, delved into characters much more deeply uh, lately. Um, his plots are just as intricate and uh, full of red herrings and misdirections and all as, as his early books. But he's gotten into the characters much more and just made them just very, very believable and uh uh, just somebody you want to spend 300 pages with. So he's a reminder to me that uh, that it's it's really all about character, even in a plot-driven mystery. That you you read it for the characters as much as the plot, and at the end of it, after you close the book and you're telling somebody about the book, you're probably talking about the characters much more than the plot. Uh, so again, it's it's all about character. Uh, I've done over a hundred book club talks um, in my so-called writing career, and I constantly quiz them about what's more important to them: characters, plot, or language. You know how words are used, and you know beautiful metaphors and things like that. And without fail, they always name character 
as the thing most important to them, the thing that holds them in a story, the thing that they remember after the Mm -hmm. story is done. And the second one is the story itself, the the plot. And then Mm -hmm. a distant third is the language, although they will tell me, you know, when they've dog-eared a page or made notes about a passage they particularly liked and want to go back to. But, uh, But the thing that holds them in the story is not the plot or beautiful language, it's the characters. And so... Yeah. Just a reminder to us authors to you know, make sure we get our characters, you know, really believable. They don't and, have to be yeah. believable. They just have to be yeah. believable. Right. Yeah, right. Because, I mean, it, it is about a lot of it is just relationship-based, you know. We're relationship-based people, and, you know, those are so important. And just being able to, you know kind of clue into that character and what they're thinking and how they're reacting to things and, and being able to, you know, understand and maybe even relate in some way to them um, is important. And you mentioned um, the first book you mentioned by Ann Patchett. I have not read that, but her book um, bit Bel Canto, you mentioned that one, that book is a book that's, that book's actually on one of my book clubs list. So we're going to be reading that in the next few months. Um, yeah. So I'm going to be diving into that book soon because of for one of my book clubs. Um, and then, of course, the Michael Connelly uh, series, the Bosch series. Now, I watched all of that on Amazon Prime and I absolutely loved Bosch. I mean, that was like one of my favorite shows. I really liked that. I haven't watched The Lincoln Lawyer, but I saw that that was a series now. Yeah. So I haven't yeah, watched it. Uh, no, no surprise, the books are better. Uh, right. Uh, okay. They, uh, you know, that's, that's just a, that's a truism, right? There are very few movies that are better or shows that are better than books that are based on just because, well, you know, if somebody turned one of your books into a show, they're going to have to cut out everything but the main plot line, right? And they only have 48 minutes an episode and they're going to, you know, just be focused on keeping the viewer's interests with, you know, twists and turns and snappy dialogue and all of that. And they're going to lose a lot of those things that you crafted and were so proud of about your book, you know, because there's no room for them. Uh, You know, particularly all the interiority of a character where you get to know their feelings and their thoughts and, and you know, the, their kind of tone of voice and all start to resonate with you and you really enjoy that character and being in their head. You don't get any of that in a, in a movie or a TV show because even if they do voiceovers, you really don't get that. So, uh, you know, I, I really recommend uh, Connolly's books for, for anybody who hasn't read them but enjoyed the TV shows. That the, the books are even better. Uh, Lee Child is another one. So the Jack Reacher series was hugely popular. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was on Amazon, I think, uh, last year. Um, or the beginning of this year, and they're going to do another another of his books uh, for the next season. And as good as that series was, and I love that series, uh, Lee Child's books were, were better. Yeah. And, uh, okay. So Lee Child is another one that I recommend uh, for creating a, an incredibly memorable character, a one-of-a-kind character, the Jack Reacher character. Uh, people will be 
writing characters based on Jack Reacher for, you know, 300 years. And, uh, and they'll all, all be saying, gosh, I wish I thought of this first. Uh, you know, just that idea of, they call him in one book, Sherlock Homeless. Uh, so this guy who just wanders from town to town, solving everybody else's problems, usually in very violent ways. Uh, but often with very uh, sound analysis and intellectualizing of problems. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's, a, he's a true problem solver like Sherlock Holmes was. Uh, so, so his books are another, uh, another series that I recommend to people about writing very tight, sharp, crisp uh, prose with a very memorable character. Okay. You can, you can go a long way doing that. Okay, that's some good advice to read, um, read those authors and kind of learn from them. So as we start to wrap up the the podcast, George, if you could either sit down maybe at coffee or at lunch or at dinner with an author, either living or dead, do you know who it would be? And do you know who what you would ask them or want to know about them? Oh, that's a great question. Um, you know, uh, somebody who I who I haven't met. So I, I, I've actually had the privilege of meeting Lee Child and Michael Connolly in, in real life and talking to them. So I, I've actually had that uh, luxury. Um, haven't met Ann Patches. I would love to sit in Ann Patches Parnassus bookstore in Nashville and talk about how she got started with writing, who her influences were, uh, how she developed her unique and beautiful voice that uh, just permeates all of her books. Uh, she has a very easy reading style um, that is hard for an author to, to master. She never gets in her own way. Uh, so I would, I'd love to talk to, to Ann Patchett. And then what's it like running a bookstore? Um, I know several bookstore owners, and uh, it sounds like a horrible horrible job. <laughs> I would love to know what her experience is uh, with it and uh, the, the joys and the travails of doing that. It's something that I think a lot of authors fantasize about is running a bookstore. Uh, <laughs> but uh, real life experience, I, I think, warns most of us away from doing that. Right. There's an old <laughs> joke about how do you make a small fortune running a bookstore? Well, you start with a large fortune. <laughs> right. <laughs> Of course. Yeah. Well, um, George, it has been a pleasure having you on the podcast and um, learning everything from your early career to your days of, um, of taking over the Atlanta Writers Club as executive director. It was very interesting. But um, tell everyone listening where they can find your books. So if they are in bookstores, local bookstores in the Atlanta area, or online, where would they go to look for those if they're either in Atlanta or if they are not in Atlanta? Yeah, so you can find information about all my books on my website, which is just George Weinstein. That's W-E-I-N-S-T-E-I-N dot com. And uh, of course, they're available for sale on Amazon. Uh, a number of small local indie bookstores uh, carry them and of course uh, can order them. They're all orderable through Ingram mm-hmm. and, uh, and that's that's really the best way to find them uh, they're available on Amazon um, as audiobooks 
uh, and ebooks as well. Okay, great, awesome. And do you have any um, book signings or anything coming up in the near future? Yeah, uh, let's see. So on Saturday, August 26th, um, my wife, uh, Georgia Author of the Year, Kim Connery, uh, that's her new name, by the way. That's why Georgia Author of the Year, Kim Connery. <laughs> Kim Connery yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's a, I mean, that's a, that's a nice title to have. That's a nice title to have, yeah, Georgia I'm Author of the Year. So she and I will be doing a book signing together at uh, Postman Books on Saturday, August the 26th from oh, 10.30 to 4 p.m. And then uh, we'll be at the Reading Attic, which is a brand new bookstore that's opened on the Marietta Square. And uh, that'll okay. be from 11.30 to 4.30 on September the 23rd. Okay. And tell me the name of that bookstore that just opened in Marietta. Again, I... It's called The Reading Attic, A-T-T-I-C, and it's on the second floor above a bubble tea shop. Uh, that's also wonderful. Um, and it's on the... Uh, uh, it's on the square. Um, let's see. Kind of... Let's see. Across the street from the... the Pizza joint. I'm trying to think of of landmarks around it. Uh, uh, the theater is it? Is it? Yeah, the theater there. Um, the theater is lovely yes. there. The yeah, it's on the uh, opposite uh, uh, side from the Strand and all. Um, okay. And uh, and and not not too far from the Australian Bakery, and uh, even closer okay. to the pizza joint that's that's on the corner. Awesome. So September 23rd, Marietta Square, the Reading Attic yep. upstairs, yep. and then Bozeman Books on... Bozeman Books. Oh, Bozeman. Did you say Bozeman? Bozeman, yeah. Or Bozeman. Bozeman, Bozeman. Yeah, yeah. M-A-N uh, at the Avalon. Great bookstore. Right. So, mm -hmm. Terrific bookstore on uh, August 26th. Right. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, George. It was a pleasure having you on, and I will include all of that information in the show notes. And this episode should be out on Spotify tomorrow. You can share it with your friends. We'll put the links for the show on the Talking Book Facebook page and on the Talking Book Atlanta Instagram story tomorrow, too. I look forward to sharing it with everybody. Thank you so awesome. much. Thank you so much for being here. Good night. Have a great weekend. Take care, Good night, everybody. Take care, everybody. Bye.